Um, we're talking about the breastplate of righteousness today, but in the exercise of discussing the breastplate of righteousness, I want to discuss also our communion table as well. And I, I wanted to do that so that you could have a good understanding of where I am in terms of my concept and my belief in the communion service. Uh, the communion service is a very personal thing for a lot of different people, and they have a lot of uh, there's a lot of ritual, a lot of tradition about that. And um, um, when people come to this fellowship, they say, "Look, why do you do it the way you do it?" You know, they do it different ways at different places. You know, so um, we've been talking all this series on context and pretext, and so I want to give you a context for why we do what we do. Uh, with regard to this, uh, the communion service. And I'm going to do that in line with the sermon today because I think it, it links on with the sermon today. And so, you know, when I, when I came to this, uh, this uh, thinking about this, the, the communion service, I thought, well, this really does flow on with the message today. So I wanted to include it together with it. So I will take the, as we're going through, I will, I'll come to the emblems and we'll talk about them as we're going through that. But I, I, I want to lay this down as a, if you like, a... A sermon that explains where we're at with this so that you can understand. Because I think there's nothing more contentious than people who have different ideas about different things and they start to jostle with one another and it becomes a, a, an empty discussion about words which is futile in the end of the exercise if they're believing the same thing. We had a, You see the crow, it was stuck in here today. It had been here for a couple of days, left its mark on the floor, so I cleaned it up and I noticed it came back to the front again to leave its mark again. I'm glad it didn't leave its mark on Alan. <laughs> so if it annoys you, um, we just left the back door open for it to get away. So that's the bird at the top. All right, so let's have a talk of, about this sermon and then we'll just first of all... Uh, um, give ourselves to God in prayer so God can help us. <clears throat> Father, we don't even presume to know everything. We know that you are the spirit of truth and you speak and you give us truth and you give us revelation, Father. And you've given us the word, the Bible, Father, so that we can grow and learn from you. Lord, if we don't understand what's in the Bible, Lord Jesus, the word is taken away by the birds, Lord, by the demonic forces. They, they take it away and we are not edified by it. So we would pray today, Lord Jesus, that you would help us to understand your word, that your word would find a place in our hearts, that we would be quick to hear your word, Lord Jesus, and Lord, that it would take root in our lives and that it would save us. We ask this in the mighty name of Jesus. We ask that you would bind every demonic force, Father, that would try and scatter the minds or confuse the hearts of those that are here. And Lord, we take authority over it in Jesus' name and we would pray, oh God, that your word and your Holy Spirit would have free reign in this place. And everyone said, Amen. Okay, so we, we're talking about prayer and we're talking about the breastplate of righteousness. Um, and the emphasis this morning is that overcoming prayer um, is born upon a life that's lived in continuous communion with God. So we have this word communion in the English and it can mean, it's descriptive of the word of eating this meal. This is the communion service in traditional churches. It's called the communion service or it's called holy communion. And then there's the word 
communion, when I sit and I talk to Noel and we sit and we talk with one another, we have fellowship with one another, that's called communion with one another. So it's, then we have the word community, which is about a group of people who are living together in community. And they, the community lives together and they have a commune of thought and heart. They have communion one with the other. So you see this word it, communion is a word that has many applications. And then there's this communion that we have with our heart before God, where God communes with us and we commune with God. It's prayer. Prayer is a communion of heart to God. It's from here towards God and from God towards here. It's the Spirit of God speaking inside of me with the truth of God's Word, communing with me and speaking to me. So I'm going to try and wrap them all together today. We're going to try and put them all together in one little sermon to get some sort of context so that when you're thinking about communion, you understand the idea that we have when we come to the communion table, when we come to communion today. Okay. So what's continuous communion with God? Well, communion is praying, communicating. And praying, it's not just praying Speaking to God, it's God speaking to you. That's communion as well. And if you stop talking and God is speaking to you, you are praying, you're still, you might not be talking, but God is communing with you, so you are in the process of praying. And Romans chapter 1 verse 9 tells us that communing should be without ceasing. That means it's a constant, it's continuous. Uh, It's not when I get up in the morning and I begin to pray, and I pray for 15 minutes, and then I get up, and then I have another time of prayer later on in the day, and then I have another time of prayer in a later on the day, and then I have another, and then when I'm going to bed I, I bed, I get down beside my bed, and I pray again. No, we're not talking about praying at specific times now. We are talking about communing with God without stopping. Praying and dialoguing with God without stopping. Is he up there? Oh, we just pray and ask God to give him peace and let him sit there and be still in Jesus' name. Amen? Okay, so in Romans chapter 1, verse 9, it says, for, my, for God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing, says Paul, he says, without ceasing, I make mention of you always in prayers. And when he said without ceasing, it meant he didn't stop. He didn't say, I'm just doing it, I'm going to continue to do it when I have my... He says, without ceasing. So he was holding them without ceasing. Now, I, I don't know whether you understand exactly how that, that works. You know, how can you do something without ceasing? I mean, you have other things you have to do, you know. But I, let, me, let me tell you something about your heart. Your heart is able to hang on to things, even though you're not actually praying about things, you're holding them in here. If your child is away and, and traveling away and you are anxious and, and concerned about them, you hold that in your heart. You, it is there in your heart and you are constantly aware of that. Even though you are doing other things, you are constantly aware of what's going. You're holding it in your heart. This is the thing of communing. It's constantly with you. It's constantly there. It's abiding with you. It's not going away. And Paul was saying, I am praying without ceasing. He's holding them here in his heart and he's, it's a continuous prayer that's going up before. He's doing Doing other things, but inside, inside in his heart, he's holding it continually before God as a prayer before God. He's concerned. We're talking about communing constantly with Jesus. 
Another passage of scripture is in First Thessalonians chapter one. And when when the idea is repeated a number of times in, in in scripture, it's not just mentioned once. You you got a good idea. This is actually something that is you should be thinking about. He says, "We give thanks to God always for you, men, making mention of you in our prayers, remembering without ceasing your work of faith, the labor of love, the patience of hope." And in our Lord Jesus Christ, in the sight of God and our Father. It says, without, now this word, without ceasing, this is the exact meaning of the words in the Greek. It says, without intermission. Without intermission. Incessantly, without ceasing. Now you know what an intermission is, don't you? Intermission is the time that happens between the big, one part of the, the, the movie and the second part of the movie. They used to have that. I don't know whether, do they still have that? They don't have that. They used to have that in the old days. When you go to see a movie and they had to change the reel, they had to take that reel off and then they had to put another movie reel on. And so in between changing the reels, because the movies were longer than one reel, because in between that they had an intermission. And what you could do in that intermission is you could stop, you could go out, you can buy popcorn and a drink and you come back and sit down and they'd, by that time they'd put the movie reel on and they'd begin playing it again. That was called an intermission. A break in between. So this word is without a break in between. Constantly, continuously praying and holding the work before God. So that's twice now he said that. There's an indication here that Paul actually lived that. If he's making mention of it, he's either doing it or he's telling you a lie. If he's not telling you a lie, then he's got something that we are not aware of or we haven't thought about. He's actually doing something that we haven't been doing lately. If we have moments of prayer, but we are not in constant communion with God. He's telling us about a constant communion with God. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 17 to 18, he says, Pray without ceasing. So he's actually giving you a directive now. He's telling you, I want you to do this. He says, pray without... You say, come on now. You know, I get in the car and drive to work. Oh, I want to close my eyes and pray. Well, you have to pray with your eyes open then. I mean, whatever you, whenever you are, are you praying? Are you... Are you, you know, I, I read a book this week about uh, great men of faith and great men of... of uh, Great moves of God throughout the world, Smith Wigglesworth and all of his mates, and they had incredible miracles taking place. But these guys didn't ever stop. They prayed continuously through the day. They prayed continuously through the night. Uh, uh, he, Smith Wigglesworth, came and stayed at my grandparents' place in New Zealand. Were you a lot? Did you, you did you see him? Was that before your time? Were you born at that time? You you remember him? Yeah, wow. Now, this, is, this is an amazing man. He, this man, he would take a, a, a dead person, throw, him, throw her against the wall and command her to live, and, and life came back to him. He, he, um, he had an incredible amount of faith. But I, from a story I think that grandma or grandma, granddad told me, he says his shoes were outside the door, and when his shoes were outside the door, you weren't to disturb him because that would mean he was in prayer. And his shoes stayed outside the door continuously all day. He was in continuous prayer. He told my grandfather, this is a little story, I think some of you already know, he told my grandfather, we are going to drive around 
uh, New Zealand and, and take the gospel to the, all the towns around New Zealand, but we're going to drive and we're not putting any fuel in the, in the petrol tank just to show you that God is with us. I, you know, you hear these stories, a uh, big story, you know. Yeah, big story. He, so my great, he says, but the condition is you are not to tell anybody. You're not to say to anybody that you're doing this. So Smith Wigglesworth, my grandfather, and another man drove in this car all the way around the South Island, preaching in all these churches, and the car never ran out of petrol. When he came back to, to, to Christchurch, my grandfather was so excited about that, he told somebody, and that was the day it ran out of petrol. Now I thought, this is a story, a legend, fairy tale. I was working on a site over in... Um, in um, in Wynnum, doing some units, because I'm a builder, I was building some units. And a man came to put in some glass bricks on the wall there. He was a, a Maori man, a Ma- Maori, from, and uh, he was standing there, and I started to talk to him about my faith. And he said, oh, okay, let me tell you a story. So he began to tell me a story about a man called Smith Wigglesworth who went around the whole of New Zealand driving a car, and it never ran out of petrol because he had faith in God. I said, you telling me that story? I said, my grandfather told me that story. Yeah, his grandfather was the other man in the car. Now, he was backslidden, and I went to him, and I said to him, you need to give your life to Jesus. I said, How, can't you see God is on your case? He wants to talk to you. You come here, your grandfather and my grandfather were in the same car where this miracle took place. That confirmed it for me. That confirmed it for me. Amazing what prayer can do, communion with God can do. Hanging in there, staying with God, holding God in your heart, holding the things in your heart and just interceding before God, continuously before God. What can God do with people who are like that? Who pray without ceasing and everything give thanks. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus. God called us and saved us not to have an intimate relationship with him. He called us and saved us to have a continuous fellowship with him. Communion with him. That's why he saved us. What was broken in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve, he came to restore so that we could have continuous relationship with God our Father. What a beautiful thing. Just pray without ceasing. And that which is easy for us to individually do, if we are walking and talking with Jesus, then it becomes easy for us to corporately do. And here in, in Acts chapter 12, verse 4, we tell the, we're told the story that Peter was taken to jail, he was captured. James had just been executed by, by Herod and they were going to, he was going to be executed the next day. Herod had a, had a mind to execute him and the church got on its knees and started to pray and it prayed all night. It says it prayed without ceasing for Peter. And so it was still praying for Peter when Peter was woken up by an angel in the, in the, in, in the uh, prison and the chains fell off him and the angel said, come with me. And the, he opened the door and took Peter out. Peter's knocking on the door and the church is still praying for his release. So much so that the girl that comes, it's Peter, and she shuts the door, incredulously not believing that it's Peter. They say, oh, it must be his spirit, it must be his angel. No, it was Peter. Continuous prayer, intercession. Holding it before God, continuously holding it, living in that communing place. You know, when you do that individually, it's easy to do that corporately. When you don't do that individually, it becomes a difficult thing when you are together corporately because you run out pretty quickly. 
Learning to commune with Jesus on a continuous basis helps you in our prayer corporately. So continuous communion is prayer that overcomes. It is prayer that never ceases. Prayer that is continuous is communion with God living in his presence. Living in the presence of God. So this is not ritual. This is not a religion. This is a relationship with Jesus. Living in his presence in a continuous way. Last week, Liz told us about the belt of truth. She showed us that the, putting on the belt of truth was something that you put on and you never took off. Once you put your belt of truth on, you left it on. It was a continuous thing. And she showed us this passage of Scripture in James chapter 1. And then we, we tend to take the center of this passage of Scripture out of its context and make a pretext out of it. We say, you've got to be, your mama said you've got two ears and one mouth. So you listen twice as much as you should speak. If mama said that, the word of God says it too. Be quick to hear, slow to speak and slow to get angry. And we take it out of its context and make a pretext out of it. We think it's talking about our dynamic and our discussion with each other. You know, and, and while that's wise to listen more than you speak, it's, this passage of scripture is not directly talking about that. In context, it says, he chose to give us birth by the word of truth. My dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen to the word of truth, which is just mentioned. Slow to speak and slow to become, become angry. Humbly accept the word, which has been in the last two verses. This is the context which is implanted in you, which can save you. And do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourself. Do it, the word, do what it says. So in the whole context, this passage, be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow, has nothing to do with your interpersonal relationship with each other. It has everything to do with the Holy Spirit, who is the spirit of truth, when he speaks to you and he tells you something, to listen to him, don't argue with him, do what he says, and don't become angry at that. Everything to do with listening to the Word of God, hearing the Word of God, obeying the Word of God. Now, if it's everything to do with listening to the Word of God, hearing the Word of God, listening to the truth and doing the truth, it has the idea that it's continuous and God is continuously speaking to you. If you are hearing Him, He is continuously speaking to you. Oh, God's not listening to me. I haven't heard from God. Don't tell me that because my sheep, says Jesus, hear my voice. My sheep hear my voice and obey. So there is a continuous thing from God coming toward us, which is like the air that we breathe. It's continuously, he is continuously there speaking to us, laying on our hearts. We say, well, I'm not listening to him. Well, you must be actually hardening your heart. You must be actually switching him off. Because if he's speaking to you, you will know he's speaking to you. He will tell you if something is wrong. He will tell you if something is right. And he will tell you if you don't change your way, there's a judgment coming. And you'll know that without even someone else telling you that. Because the spirit of truth will communicate that to you. It tells us that in John chapter 16. So the prayer that overcomes is by listening and obeying the the truth of God's word. Every second, every minute, every day of every week of every year, it's continuous. Mm. It's a constant You you take a moment now and just think about it. Is it like that for you? Or is it just an add-on during the day? An add-on in the morning? An add-on in the middle of the day? 
or maybe an add-on when you feel you should add it on, or is it a continuous sense of his presence with you? Are you walking and living in communion with God? Are you aware of his presence? Overcoming prayer is opening one's ears to the truth and one's will to obey the truth. Isaiah says this about Jesus in Isaiah 50, and I love this passage of Scripture because it gives us an insight of what it was like for Jesus when he was here. Isaiah said that Jesus, he said, The Lord God hath given me the tongue of a learned, of the learned, that I should know how to speak a word in season to him that is weary. So he says, God's given me a, an understanding, the ability to, to sustain people who are weary. How, how does Jesus get that ability to speak words to people's lives who are going through difficult times who are weary? How does he? This is what he says. Morning by morning, he wakens my ear to hear as a learned person, or wakens my ear to listen as one being taught, it says in another translation. The Lord God hath opened mine ear, and I was not rebellious, neither turned away. So here we have Jesus listening to the Father. He's asleep. And as he wakes up, the first thing he's aware of when he wakes up is that God is wanting to speak to him. No, not only say, I have to get up and now and do my prayers. Oh, it's time for prayers in the morning. If you don't pray like I pray, <laughs> you're obviously not going to get there. I get up in the morning and early in the morning and I spend my days in prayer, you know, and then we can use that as a big badge that we walk around on us. You see how much I pray? Aren't you impressed that I pray a lot? Listen, this has nothing to do with your ritual of prayer or your being proud of what you're doing praying. This is a relationship. His ear was woken in the morning and God began to speak to him. His ear was woken so he could do something during the day. Why? Because all through the day he was communing with God and when he woke up, God was saying, time to wake up now. What? Time to wake up. I've got some things I want you to do today. I've got some things you should know. I've got some words that you should take on board so you can need to sustain the weary. He's saying, okay, Father, let's start communing. This was not a ritual of prayer that he was doing that you ought to be proud of him by. This was his walk with Jesus, his talk with Jesus. This was him breathing his faith. This is not a ritual. This is not a religion. This is a relationship with God Almighty. God communing with us on a permanent basis. I can die for that. You can kill me. You can say, you, can, I, you, you give Jesus away or I'll cut your head off. You, you can do whatever you like. It doesn't matter to me because you're not going to take Jesus away from me. He just says, stand and take it. I'll take it. And you know why I'll take it? Because you're not taking Jesus away from me. You can't take Jesus away from me. You take my life away, I'll go to be with him. I'm walking with him. I'm living with him. I'm communing with him. This is not ritualistic prayer. This is communion with God. Continuous. And Hebrews tells us in Hebrews chapter 3 verse Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. And that's what happens. You know, we start off the day, we start to talk to you. I want to do this. I want to live with you. And then we begin to harden the heart because he starts telling us to do things that we don't want to do. And that's when it gets rubbish because we say, oh, we'll just do a prayer here. I've done my thing. And I'll go and do another prayer here. So that's going to appease the fact that we're not walking and talking with him, not communing with him. 
And his desire is that we commune with him. Today we're talking about the breastplate of righteousness. The righteousness is a state of life. It's a state of being. It's a lifestyle. It is not just a position that we have in God. I am righteous in Jesus. You hear that all the time. I am righteous in Jesus. Jesus has given me his cloak of righteousness. It's like a position. I know I'm not getting everything right, but I'm righteous in Jesus. Uh -uh. Stop. You're doing it again. You're making righteousness, which is a constant, something that you, you put on. It's speaking about a constant attitude. It's not speaking about something that you, I have it in Jesus. I'm glad that when I die, I'm going to be okay because he gives me his robes of righteousness. I can do the bad thing here and there and then Jesus will give me his coat. No, no, no. This is a constant again. It's like the belt of truth. It's a constant. You're to put the thing on and never take it off. So it's telling you about something that is a continuous thing that should take place in our lives. The breastplate of righteousness is a continual thing. It's a, not just a spiritual, it's a disposition. It's an attitude. It's a way of life. It's a way of living. It is communing in right relationship with the Lord continuously. Every day, every week. You know, there's a false breastplate of righteousness. And the, and, the, and the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the day, had the false one on. Jesus said to them, he warned, he said, I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the, the scribes and the Pharisees, you'll no way get to heaven. Oh, you couldn't fault the scribes and the Pharisees. Everything they did was right. You just look at them, you say, oh yeah, that's right. He says, you are like beautiful whitewashed tombs. Everything on the outside is beautiful and correct. You got it all right. Your hair is parted in the right place. You got the right sort of clothes on. You're doing the right sort of traditions. You're saying the right sort of words. But you know what? Inside of you, you are not communing with God. You are communing with people. And you know why? It says simply, you know, when you stand to pray, you, you stand to pray to be seen by men. That people could see you praying. Look at that man pray. Well, look, I am so impressed at that man's prayer. To be seen by men. He says, you got your reward. That's not righteousness. That's right standing with humanity. Not right standing with God. It's right standing with humanity. I just want to be right before their eyes. So I'm going to be seen to pray. Let them know that I pray. Let them know how many times I pray. Why? Because I want to build in their mind a sense that I'm very spiritual and they are not. That's not righteousness. Righteousness goes into a room in secret where God is seeing in secret and doesn't let anybody know what's going on. Gets down on the knees and prays where no one knows but God sees and then answers the prayer. It's nothing to do with your righteous expression of what you are doing so that everybody can know that you are so high and mighty. It's nothing to do with that. It's your communion with God. You see, we can twist it up and make it so, you know, it's just as long as we seem to be righteous. The breastplate talks, of, it's, the word for breastplate is thorax. And that's interesting because that's where we get the word for thorax. And this is this part here from here down to here. And it's the back and the front. So when you've got a thorax of an insect, it's that section, the middle section of the insect. And it... It's a breastplate of protection, so it's protecting the vital organs. Now, there are lots of vital organs in, the, in this region of your body. But I'm going to take four vital organs today. And I'm going to use them as symbols or metaphors for 
righteousness. Okay, So I'm going to take the liver because the liver cleanses the blood. So it talks about cleansing. I'm going to take the heart because it's the seat of affection or the seat of emotion or the seat of decision in, in, in some things. I'm going to talk about the lungs because it's the breathing aspect and that talks about the, 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 the place of our spirit. The word pneuma is the word for breath or wind. So and that's the word for spirit. And I'm going to talk about the stomach, which will bring us to this meal. The stomach, our appetite. Our appetite. Which is what we want, the sort of food we like to eat. So let's talk about the liver. The liver has a cleansing. It cleanses the blood. I don't know exactly how it works. And those who've done some nursing and those who know these sort of things will be able to tell us uh, exactly how that works. But it cleanses the blood. Uh, And we know that Jesus forgives us. It says in the prayer, it says if we pray the Lord's Prayer or the prayer that he teaches us to pray, it says, pray this prayer, forgive us our sins as we forgive them that sinned against us or forgive us our debts as we forgive them that have... Forgive us our debts as we forget our debtors. Yep. Now listen to me. Don't worry about the bird. He'll always be there. The birds you have with you always. They're distractions. And they call us to focus. You're always going to have a bird in the house. The difference is some get distracted by the birds and others don't. So listen, don't get distracted. It's just a bird. Now we don't get this here, you know. In our English it says, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. We don't get this idea here. But it's in the tense in the, in the Greek, because, the, you know, we have past, present, and future in English tenses, you know? Like past, you know, forgive, he forgave, present, to forgive, uh, 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 forgive, and then future is to forgive. You put the two in front of it, they say past, present. Well, the Greek has different tenses, and their tenses tell us something about what's happening in the word. But it can't be translated really well into English, so I'm going to give you it now. This word, okay, the word forgive, it has this idea of continuous, okay, in it because of the tense that it's used. It's called a present active voice, okay? It's called the present active voice. And, and then what it does, it says it means doing it now. So to, to read that correctly would be not forgive us our sins as we forgive, which is when I choose to ask for forgiveness. No, no, it says be forgiving which is a statement of constance. Be forgiving us our debts as we forgive, are forgiving, continuously forgiving those who are wronging us. So it's a constant. It's not, this, is not, this is not something that I have to do. Are you forgiving them? Oh, I haven't yet. Oh, I will when I feel like I, did. I, I can see. No, 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 no. Then you, are, you have a problem with your righteousness. Because your righteousness requires that you are constantly, continuously forgiving. So if he's wronging you, you are forgiving as he's wronging you. As he's wronging you and despising, you are forgiving him as he's wronging and despising you. You are forgiving, continuously forgiving. It's an attitude of forgiveness that is flowing out of you continuously. It's just coming out of you always. Be forgiving all the time as you are being forgiven all the time. It's a continuous. It's not just something that I'll do when I get my mind to it. Oh, don't ask me to do that yet. I'm still too angry to do that. 
No, 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 you forgot it. You, got to, you just took your breastplate off. Your breastplate is on when you are continuously forgiving all the time. You get that? So when you get smacked in the face, you come up here for prayer today. What, were you, what do you want us to pray for? I've got a sword. No, no. I want to pray for this man who hit me yesterday. I want to pray for his mob. I want to pray for his people. I want to pray for him. He needs Jesus. He's going, that's the attitude of righteousness. When you don't have that, you're not righteous. You take the breastplate off. The, forgive, the liver is exposed. The cleansing is not there. It says in Scripture, it says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Again, look at the, the word confess. We look at the, it's a practice, present active voice. It means doing now. So it is, if we are confessing our sin. Now, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know how you can sin and at the same time be confessing your sin. Now, well, that will make it, that will actually shut you down with regard to sinning. If you are constantly asking Jesus to be forgiving of your sin, cleansing you of your life, then when you start to look at something, you'll start to say something, you'll start to do something that you know is not right, is sinful. You know that you're going to come to that. No, he says, no, don't, don't come to it later. Be living there now. Oh, Lord, I, you know, I, I just got a thought, an immoral thought that just comes from, I'm just really sorry about that, Jesus. Will you just take that away now? I just go, you know, if you get rid of that immoral thought before it even gets into there and it starts becoming a meditation and then becomes a, 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 an action, you got it before it got you. And, ha- and then you're living a righteous life. Oh, that's right, yeah. Righteousness actually acknowledges that you're living in this confessing place. Confessing, continuously confessing, continuously coming before God and saying, cleanse me, cleanse me, cleanse me, cleanse me. I have a wrong thought, cleanse me. I have an attitude, cleanse me. I have, I, oh, that's not right. Cleanse me. I have a picture that comes out, oh, cleanse me, Lord Jesus. I want to walk with you in the right place. Cleanse me continuously. Flow through me with your blood. Cleanse me continuously. That's righteous. Righteous is not coming up and doing Hail Mary, Mother of God, or sitting down and saying your confession to the priest because you've got to clean it off and then go away on Monday and then do the rest of your sitting. No, 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 that's just religious junk. What we're talking about is a walk with Jesus, a talk with Jesus, a communing with God. We're talking about something that's constant. And if you're living there constant, you can't be sinning. It's inconsistent. How can you meditate sin? If you're asking him to take it away the minute it comes and presents itself to you. Oh, that we put the breastplate on and leave it on. Oh, that we live with the breastplate of righteousness on. And we keep our liver safe. Oh, that the spirit of Jesus keeps us humble before him. We keep short accounts before God. And we continuously come before him and say, God, I just want to walk with you. I want to walk with you and be with you and talk with you. I'm not interested in being religious here. I'm not interested in religion. I don't do church for religion's sake. I walk with Jesus and do this because Jesus wants me to do this. This is part of my communion with God. How can you handle it? Say, so, I would have quit by now. Yeah, you might have quit by now, but I'm in communion with Jesus. This is not a quitting matter. This is life for me. This is life with Jesus. Let's talk about the heart then. We've talked about the liver. It talks about that sense of cleansing. The heart. The heart is your devotion. It's the, it's the thing that you love. Loving fellowship with God and loving fellowship with humanity. 
Mm, that's what's abided with the heart, you know. I love you with all my heart, Len, you know. That's this idea that there's something of the heart. So we've got to look at that. It speaks of continuous prayerful state of communion because it's talking about your love relationship, your heart love relationship with God. Love is enthroned. In the tense, it's future active tense in the, in the Greek. So it's, a, it's pointing forward. But it's active. What we shall be continuously doing. What we shall be continuously doing in a state of continuousness. He said, so he answered them and said, you shall love, you shall be loving the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. And you shall be loving your neighbor as yourself. When you come to that place, that's what you shall be doing. You shall be doing and living in that righteous state. It shall be a continuous loving. Think about that. I don't care how angry you're getting. I don't care how right you think you are. It's a continuous loving. It's a loving of God continuously. I mean, surely you'd just like to watch TV a little longer. It's that show again. And the Spirit of Jesus says, come away. Come and let's spend some time. But we know what you love more because you stay there longer than you do putting that off and coming to Jesus and talking to Jesus. Oh, we've got so many things that play with our heart. They want us to give a, their attention. You know, they want us to love them. You know, Jesus, Paul said, I mean, John says, you know, this is the problem. You, know, you don't love God because you love the things of the world. And when you love the things of the world, the, the love of the Father is not in you. If you love wealth, I, I, I've got to have money. If you love status, I've got to be important before something. I've got to be seen to have status in community, like I'm up here, and my car says I'm up here, and my clothes says I'm up here, and my wallet says I'm up here. You've got to be impressed with me, don't you? Hey, you love that stuff. You know, you love that status. You don't want to be humble. You don't want to be low. You don't want to be down there. You don't want to be unseen. You want to be seen. You want to have fame. You want to have love. You want love before men. But you ha- can't have love before men and have love for God. And you've got to have this continuously. You have to choose. You know, who do I want to love most? Do I love, want to love God or do I want to love uh, you know, society and the things that are in the world? And then when you're mixing with people, oh, it was easy to be a Pharisee, to look down your nose at somebody and say, okay, you're obviously not as righteous as I am. Easy, easy stuff. All you need to do is compare how you walk with Jesus and then look at the other person. Obviously, they don't. And you can be right. You can be right. You might have a closer relationship with God than they have. You might be right, but you're dead wrong because you don't love them the correct way. You make a comparison as though you are something different to them and you're just a, not, a, a rotten little sinner like they are. And your sinner, that, that moment is your hubris. Look it up. Listen to me. This is the dynamic. This is a walk of love. And if you don't have the breastplate of righteousness on, your heart is exposed. Your heart is exposed. 
You wonder why you have issues of the heart? You love that boy more than you love God? Well, he doesn't love God, but you love God, but you love him too. Now you're stuck, aren't you? Well, what will you do now? Well, we want to get him saved. Well, that's, that's well and noble, but what if he doesn't? What do you do now? Did you take your breastplate off to do that? Because in the end of the exercise, will you walk away from him? If he doesn't give his heart to Jesus? Hmm. This is not piety. This is not religious. This is communion with a living God. Let's go on. Lungs, the place you breathe. The word in the Greek is pneuma. That's where we get an idea from pneumatic tires or pneumatic drills, you know, air-driven things, you know. So pneuma is the word for spirit. Spirit. So lungs have to do with breath and breathing, and so it's, we're talking about spirit here. John said to them, or Jesus said to the disciples, and John recorded, he says, and when he said this, he, said, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. So we're talking about now the Holy Spirit's presence in our lives. Breathe on them, he says. He breathed on them, he says, receive the Holy Spirit. And I believe that they received the Holy Spirit right then. They weren't baptized or filled with the Holy Spirit, but they were receiving the Holy Spirit at that point of time. So the Holy Spirit came to dwell with them. In Ephesians chapter 5, verses 18 to 20, it actually tells us to be filled with the Spirit. Now, again, I'm going to take you to the Greek to see the tense of the Greek because the tense is important because it tells you something about what it is to be filled. At one moment, I, I was filled with the Spirit, you know. When I was 18, I was filled with the Spirit. No, 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 it's not telling you that. It's telling you it's a present passive imperative. Now, I know it sounds rubbish, but listen to me. It's happening now. It's happening to you. And it must... And you must be doing this. So it's not, he says, be filled with the Spirit. It's a commandment. It's a, it's, it, you must be doing this. You are not going to induce it because you can't, the Holy Spirit is coming to do it to you. He's going to come and fill you. But you have to be presenting yourself to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And how often does this take place? Constantly. Constantly. Continuously being filled with the Holy Spirit every minute of the day. Lord Jesus, fill me with the Holy Spirit. Lord Jesus, help me. Fill me with the Holy Spirit. Lead me, guide me, teach me, fill me, empower me, quicken me. Give me wisdom and understanding and strength. Lord Jesus, walk with me, talk with me, help me, be with me. Holy Spirit, fill me, fill me, fill me. Continuously fill me. Like a jug being poured into a vessel, it never stops and it just starts to outflow and overflow and overflow and it just poured more, pour more, pour more into my life. I'll cut that out, Jesus. I've had enough now. I can't go on with life anymore. You know, just, just moments, please, not just the whole, the whole flow of your spirit. No, no, just moments, please. I can't handle much more than that. Whoa, if you could handle more, God could do more. This is a continuous, it's like breathing. You, you know, just have a stop there, just stop. stop. You know, give me 15 minutes without a breath. What would happen? You would die. If you don't have time with Jesus and ask him to fill you with your spirit on a continuous basis, guess what happened? Your breathing is going to stop. You will die spiritually. No doubt about it. No doubt about it. You'll have all the trappings of religiosity. 
You'll look like a religious person. You'll go to church and you'll do all the right things. But you'll be dead on the inside because you're not asking for that infilling, continuous infilling of the Spirit of God. So how do we actually have that? And we, we looked at that some time ago when we were going through Ephesians just before. It says, speaking to yourself in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for all things unto God and the Father in the name of Jesus Christ. And all these are in the active tense saying, be doing this continuously. It's not just a moment, but it's I am singing psalms on the inside if I'm not, not singing a hymn and if I'm not quoting scripture and if I'm not thinking something else about God. I'm always thinking about it. Or maybe just, I just thank God. I just thank God for that. I love Sister Shireen. I, she's not here and I pray that God would strengthen her today. Sister Shireen, you know, one of the things I've never heard Sister Shireen do, and, and she has been sick for many years, and she should have been dead five years ago. I have never heard her grumble about it. All I hear her do is sing praise. All I hear her do is say, thank you, Jesus. I, she is continuously giving out of her life, even though her life is trapped in a, an ailment that we just don't understand. You can look at her and say, well, you don't have enough faith to be healed. I tell you what, she has enough faith to rise up in that situation. In spite of that situation, be filled with the Holy Spirit and be thankful to God. Friends, this is not a thing that we are doing. This is a state of life. This is living. Breastplate. Now we talk about food. Because your stomach is being protected. You don't want to sort through the stomach. Your stomach is protected, and your stomach is the seed of appetite. So when you talk about the breastplate, it's talking about appetite. The Bible says in Matthew chapter 5, verse 6, Blessed are those that hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. And again, it's the present active participle. Blessed are those who are hungering and thirsting a constant state those who are continuously hungry and those who are continuously thirsty because they will be filled now that sounds like well if you're filled you wouldn't be hungry and thirsty anymore would you if you're filled you're satisfied oh, i'm satisfied now i'm i've had enough to eat thank you very much no no you can never get enough of jesus and you can never get enough of his refreshment you know you know what i don't want to ever be full enough to stop wanting jesus i want more and more and more of jesus i want more and more of his refreshment i want more and more of his nourishment I want to live in a constant state of hungering and thirsting. I want to be satisfied. Listen to this. I want to be satisfied with an unsatisfied satisfaction. I notice you're writing that down. Listen. I want to be satisfied with an unsatisfied satisfaction. I want to continuously be seeking and searching. Even after I've had a full meal, I want to have more. I want more, Jesus. I want more. Are you giving me heaps now, Lord Jesus? I've had enough. No, I haven't had enough. I want more. I want more, Jesus. I'm thirsty. I've had enough. I feel like I'll have it more. I'll drown. I, it doesn't matter. Let me drown. I want more. I want more, Jesus. What do you want? What do you want? What are you hungering and thirsting after? What's your passion? What are you looking for? What are you seeking for? Do you want more of Jesus? You get to the thing, oh, well, just Jesus is something you put on a, a picture that you hang on the wall. It's not even Jesus. You don't even know what it looked like. You put that picture on the wall and you look at it and say, that's Jesus. It's, it's idolatry. That's what it is, having a picture on the wall. 
You're worshipping a picture. You don't know what Jesus looked like. His spirit, he's alive, he's living in you. It's not a picture in the front of your Bible. Rip that out. It's rubbish. You don't know what Jesus looks like. This is you're hungry for God. This is real food and real meat. Real drink. This is continuous. The hungering and thirsting is continuously coming to eat to be nourished, continuously coming to drink to be refreshed. Oh, you have a bad day. You've been working out in the sun. It's been heavy. It's been hard. You get home and the kids are making a noise. You just want to get into that nice, cool movie room. Pull the chair out. You sit down and you say, Wife, get me a beer. You sit down there. You sit down with your feet up there like that. You flick on the six o'clock news. You want to watch the news. And the kids come running. Oh, get out of the room. I don't, get out of the room. Just leave me alone. I just got to... Your wife says, why are you doing that? Why are you doing that? I've got to just get refreshed. I just got to be informed. Got to get some nourishment from the six o'clock news. Wait. Hungering and thirsting. Where do you get your refreshment from? When you're feeling really hairy and heavy, do you go down for a massage somewhere? You go and take a long, cool drink in the swimming pool? Don't disturb me. Got to be refreshed. No, no, nothing wrong with those things. But if you make those things the point of fact where you get refreshed at those things, you're missing the whole point because your refreshment doesn't come from those things. They just fix the ailments in the body, they don't fix the ailment in the soul. Jesus says, Come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Come to me, says Jesus, I will give you rest. Don't go to your drink. Don't go to your movies. Don't, go, don't find your refreshment and your nourishment somewhere else. Jesus says, come to me when you're weary. You know what? If we take the breast of righteousness off, we can go and do all of that stuff and, th- and justify it to ourselves and say, well, we're only trying to get, have some relaxing time, you know, some, some time off. A day for myself. It doesn't wash. doesn't wash with Jesus. You don't have to convince me. You have to convince him. He's the one who's standing out in the cold and saying, I've got this drink for you and I've got this nourishment for you. You didn't want it. I had it here ready for you. You didn't come for it. Where were you when you wouldn't? Oh, you were somewhere else. You were down getting your refreshment and your nourishment from somewhere else. You weren't finding it in me. So the problem is not with Mark and what he really thinks you ought to be doing. The problem is not with me. It never is with me. I don't care what you are doing. The problem is with the Lord that you serve. He's the one who's watching how much time you're coming to him for refreshment and nourishment. John chapter 6 verse 35. Jesus has just fed the, in a crowd, 5,000. He sits them down in, in groups of 500, I think, or 100 or something. I don't know what it was. 5,000 sitting there and he breaks the bread and he feeds them and they go out and they have a big meal. Jesus has multiplied the bread and the fish. He's fed this huge number of people and then he, he get, takes off at night and he, with his disciples and, and the disciples, the others, all of the people that came, the crowds, they go away. They find out, where is he? Where is he? And they find out where he is. He's living in this place. He's, he's walking around this. So they come to him. And they say, Jesus, you know, they want to make him king because, boy, what we want is a prime minister who can give us free handouts all the time. 
That's what we want. We want a prime minister who can make sure our welfare is looked after. We want a prime minister who can look after our welfare. That's what we want. You know what you need to have? You need to have a God who is providing all of your needs. And whether you have a prime minister who, who looks after you that way or not, it shouldn't make a difference. You should just trust Jesus for all of your needs. Okay? It comes here like this. They come into Jesus and say, you've got to give us this physical stuff. You know, and Jesus says, you're only seeking me, not because you want to believe in me, because you ate the bread and you, you drank the drink, the physical stuff. And then he decides to chuck a little wobbly one in there and he, he, t- he decides to confuse them a little bit. He decides to throw something in that's so hard to understand that it's going to cause them a problem. He said, you know, if you really want life, you've got to eat my flesh and drink my blood. They say, what are you talking about? He says, munch on my flesh and, and drink my blood. Now, that's pretty sickening, isn't it? What are you saying? And they think, you're mad. You know, they thought he was talking about cannibalism. He was talking about finding nourishment in him. And refreshment in him. But the people literally thought it. And, you know, we were talking about food. And now he's telling me, eat my flesh. They're thinking, you, you mean I've got to chew on your flesh and, and drink and sip your blood? So guess what? Or left. But in the dialogue, he started talking about these things. And this is one of the words he said in, in cha- John chapter 6, verse 35. And Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes or is coming to me will never go hungry. And he who believes is believing. That's that's the text again. Is believing, is coming. It's a constant. If we are continuously coming to Jesus, if we're continuously believing in Jesus, he will never be thirsty. The context is that he was asking them to have faith in him. That's the context. So that's the context and pretext. Now pretext is taking a verse out of its context. And this is where we come to the Holy Communion. So we have this passage of Scripture, which becomes the foundation point of the Holy Communion service in the Catholic Church. The Eucharist. They take these words. Jesus said to them, Very truly, I I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life and I will raise them up in the last day. My flesh is real food and my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me and I in him. If you are continuously coming to Jesus and eating of Jesus, if you're continually coming to Jesus and getting refreshment in Jesus, you're continually remaining in Jesus. And if you're continually remaining in Jesus, you continually have his life in you. That's the tense. Just as the living Father sent me and I live... Because of the Father, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. So Jesus lived in continuous relationship with the Father, and just as the Father lived, Jesus lived. If we live in the same continuous relationship with Jesus, we will also live. You get the point? Okay, let's make this a pretext. Let's take it out of its context, and let's make it a pretext. Let's talk about this is a moment, not a continuous This is a moment that you do at a moment of time. This is not living in a continuous relationship with Jesus, continually feeding on Jesus, continually refreshing yourself. Let's make it a moment in time when we think about this. So we take that verse and we say, you know, the Catholic Church says, this is the actual body of Jesus Christ. Well, it's little wafers. And this is the actual wine. This is his blood. And though you come to a community, it is not the same as what you're thinking. If you go to a Catholic church and take the Mass, it's not the same as what you're thinking. He takes the little wafer and he puts it on your tongue. You are not to chew it. The reason why you are not to chew that wafer is because he believes that when the wafer hits your tongue, it becomes the flesh of Jesus. It's the actual flesh of Jesus. 
And they will defend that by saying, you can go to Poland, you can find the host that has fallen on the ground. And they took it, and the next day it came along and it was a piece of flesh on the ground. They took it up, it turned from uh, to a piece of flesh, and they put it in a little glass jar, and they've got it there now, and they can work, look at that, look at that, it's, it's true, eh? It's a moment, a thing that you do at a particular time, and the priest has the power to do it. This is holy communion. These are holy, holy emblems. They're not emblems, these are holy. This is the body of Jesus, and this is the actual blood of Jesus. That's what they teach. Now look, in response to this, Protestants and other people who looked and read this and said, you're taking that out of context. You're making a pretext out of that. They, they said, no, these... These are not the actual body and blood of Jesus. Jesus is talking about believing, so it's all figurative. It's just bread. It's just wine. It's not the actual. But you know what? And then they were taken away and they were burned at the stake or they were taken away and they had their heads chopped off because they believed that. That's what happened in history. You can go and find it in history. That was one of the questions they asked them. The idea of this is called transubstantiation. That the body of Jesus becomes, that the bread becomes the, the actual physical flesh of Jesus in your mouth. That's called transubstantiation. The body becomes, it's a miracle. He holds it up there, it's a miracle happens and he gives it. That's what they believe. I don't believe that. I believe what the Protestants believe. The Protestants, it said subsubstantiation. That's the, that's the theological word for it, subsubstantiation. It, it's, these are only pictures of, metaphors or, or emblems that, that tell us something about what Jesus is doing. But you know what happened? At this point of time, we were conned. Because communion was always a constant. And now we accepted a moment of time. We defended the moment. But we lost the constant. Communion is a constant. It is never a moment. It is never just a one-off time. It's a continuous. It has always been a continuous. So let's have a look at the biblical context of communion with God. I I know this takes time, but I, I, I want to lay this down very clearly for you. It starts back in the Garden of Eden. Communion with God was broken in the Garden of Eden by, by humanity's sin. God broke the communion with God, was broken because of sin. Sin broke communion. And then God says, you know, well, to have communion with me, to have fellowship with me, to talk with me and walk with me, you know what's going to have to happen? Something's going to have to die to cover your sins. Some innocent person has got to be judged or some innocent thing has got to be judged and punished so that you can be set free. And so God did the first thing. He took animals and he took the skins of animals and he clothed their nakedness, their shame with the skin of an animal. The very beginning, God did that. You read that in, in, in Genesis chapter 3, verse 21. And also from Adam and his wife, the Lord God, made tunics of skins to clothe them. How did he make the tunics of skins? He killed an animal to cover their nakedness. Consequence of broken breach of relationship, something has to die. Laid the foundation and it was supported and continued on. Because we read then in chapter 4, we, we read about Cain and Abel and Cain brings an offering of, of an animal which has been slaughtered and puts it before the Lord and Cain brings the offering of his own hands, the product of the field. He, this is what I've 
Right on your own. Brings it to, and God says, I accept one and not the other. He accepted the slaughtered animal because it said the picture. Something has to die to have communion with me. So that was, that was a standard. That became the pattern of Scripture. In Genesis chapter 8, verse 20, Noah understood that because after Noah goes through the flood, the first thing he does, he, he builds an altar. And on the altar, he offers up clean animals to the Lord as a sacrifice because he knows this is the pattern. When you have an altar, you have to have an animal that pays for the suffering or that pays for the sin. An innocent must die for the guilty. That's the pattern. That's the pattern in Scripture. Right from the very beginning, the pattern of Scripture. Innocent must, must die for the guilty. Innocent must die for the guilty. Innocent... Sin must be judged. You don't want to die. I don't want you to die. So something else has got to die because righteousness and holiness must be upheld. There was always an altar and there was always a sacrifice on the altar. That was the way it was. Genesis chapter 22 verse 13, we told that Abraham lifted up his eyes he was offering up his son. He was doing the same thing. And God showed him the ram caught in the thicket. You know, here we have again, the father of faith, Abraham, recognizes that the way to have communion with God is to acknowledge that sin separates you from God and that you offer a sacrifice so that you can commune with God. You can have a continuous communion with God. He understands that. Genesis 22 tells us that he saw a ram and offered it up as a burnt offering to the Lord. There was an altar and there was blood on the altar. That was why they could commune with God. And this is the same idea that was brought about in the book of Exodus when the children of Israel were in Egypt. They're all in Egypt now. There's maybe half a, half a million people now coming out of Egypt and the Pharaoh won't let them go. And, and God says, look, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do something different. I'm going to... I'm going to kill the firstborn and I'm going to pass over that place and I'm going to strike the firstborn dead. But this is what you're going to do. You're going to create a feast. You're going to take a lamb and you're going to kill a lamb and you're going to roast the lamb and you're going to stand with your feet, shoes on. You're going to stand with a staff in your hand and your belt around your waist. You're going to be ready to go. You're going to eat it really quickly. He says, because when I pass over, he says, you'll take the blood from the lamb and you'll put the blood on the doors doorpost on the lintel and the angel will look and if he sees the blood on the doorpost and the lintel sitting I'll pass over you and I won't make judgment of you the people that are inside your house will not die you'll be safe you'll have communion with me but anybody who doesn't have the blood everybody who doesn't have the they're not covered and they'll lose their first son well there was a great outcry in the land because as soon as the angel came over after they'd eaten this feast as soon as the angel came over first building were dead everywhere and they kicked them out straight away. Get out of this place. Get out. And, the, and the Israelites were hidden towards the promised land. And this is what he said. Then they shall eat the flesh of the, of the lamb on that night, roasted in the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs, and they shall eat it. And thus you shall eat it with a belt around your waist and sandals on your feet and your staff in your hand. So you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. This is instituted now as a feast for the Israelites. So this day shall be to you as a memorial. So this is a memorial. You've got to do this every time, you know, a memorial. And you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. You shall make it a feast by the everlasting ordinance. It's a feast. So a feast is a meal. The meal was roast lamb. Oh, and what was the roast lamb symbolic of? They ate the roast lamb because the roast lamb was a picture of the innocent that died for them because of their sin. 
Something had to die, so they'd take the lamb, they'd put their hands on the heads of the lamb, and they'd say, I have sinned, and they'd articulate their sins. Then the, then the innocent lamb, the sin would go on to the innocent lamb, and the in, innocent lamb was killed because sin must be punished. It was killed. And then it was offered up. And they ate the lamb because they acknowledged they needed the lamb. God set it up. And when a stranger dwells with you and wants to keep the Passover to the Lord, let his mouths be uncircumcised and let him come near. And so he said, anybody who wants to keep this feast can come, but they have to get into relationship because the, 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 the relationship of circumcision was a relationship of covenant, of relationship. So if you weren't a Jew but you wanted to keep the Passover, if you're a male, you had to get circumcised. The circumcision meant that you're now in relationship with God. And then you could keep the Passover. So this is not, this is not a meal like a feeding program. This is a believer's feast. A believer's feast. A feast for believers. A, free, a feast for those who recognize they need the blood. They need the, the body. This is for believers, not for unbelievers. It's for believers. Okay? It's what we do. It's not what we do out in the street. It's what we do together as a family. So this is the context that Jesus celebrated. So when he's, in, he's coming and he goes to his disciples, he says, Now on the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and the Feast of Unleavened Bread was another feast, another meal they had before they had the Passover. And the unleavened bread was bread without leaven or yeast in it. And it, it meant there was no sin. So they tried to stop sinning for a whole week beforehand so that they could then have the lamb, you know. So this is, he was a Jew. Jesus was a Jew. So on the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, his, the disciples came to Jesus saying to him, where do you want us to prepare for you to eat the Passover? Well, we've got to set up the Passover. What was in the process of setting up the Passover? That we have to find a lamb first. We have to find a lamb that's spotless and we have to kill it. We have to prepare it. We have to cook it. That was what was involved. We have to get bread and put the bread there. We have to have wine there. We have to have bitter herbs there. We have to have these things on the table. This is the table of Passover. He says, yeah, he says, you can go into this certain place and there's a man that's going to be there and, the, and, he, and the, he'll say, tell him that the teacher wants to, you know, to have the, the Passover with him. He'll, let, he'll show you where to go. That's exactly what happened. And when it was evening, the 12 of them were there. And then Jesus celebrated it. He says, now, as many of you are eating, he said, assuredly I say unto you, one of you will betray me here. So not all the people that were sitting around that meal were believers. It's a believer's meal, but not all the people in that were believers. And then he articulated, one of them was not believing in him. One was going to betray him. And they asked, who is that going to be? And he dipped the sop and he gave it to Judas. He actually partook of it. Satan entered him and he went out to, de to deceive him. So it's a believer's feast, but not all believers are there. And this is the one... That Jesus was thinking. He says, why don't we... He says, Jesus at the meal, he says, now, he says, we're going to make some changes here. Now, he said, you know, he said, this lamb is my body, which is broken for you. But, you know, the Passover is not something that has to keep on going for believers. So we don't have to go and get a lamb now and have roast lamb on Sunday. We used to eat roast lamb on Sunday all the time. I wondered, why did we used to have roast lamb every Sunday? Why did we eat roast lamb every Sunday? Maybe it was this idea that roast lamb is what you do on Sundays. Maybe. 
It's true. It's true. So Jesus, he finds the bread. He's changing now the picture. He's going to change the picture because he doesn't want us to keep on practicing the Passover. And the reason he doesn't want to keep on practicing the Passover because the Passover has a dead lamb on the plate. And the dead lamb is the thing that took away the, the sins of the world. No, no, no. He, I am the bread of life. This is my body which is broken for you. I'm breaking my body for you now. Do this in remembrance of me. And he took his body and he, and he took the bread and he showed them. In the context of the meal, which was the Passover, he shifted the emphasis and focus from the lamb, which he had taken, to now the bread, which is his body, which is broken for you. And he says, eat ye all of it. He's shifting the focus now to bread. No, not to the little magical bread that goes on your tongue. To the feast. The feast remained the same. The meal continued. This time they looked at the bread. And when they saw the broken bread, they recognized that it was his broken body. That this is what the memorial was about. This is still a memorial. He put his broken body there and said, do this in remembrance of me. He says, this is the cup. And he took the cup and he filled it. We've got grape juice here today. He says, this is my, bloody, my blood which is poured out for you. And he poured it out. And he said to them, take it and drink it. It's just poured out for you. So he did this in the context of a meal. We will do it in the context of our meal. Every love feast from now on. We will pour it out like this. The person who shares will break the bread and will pour out the grape juice like this. So what I'm going to do to remind you, so we're not going to partake of this now. No. This table is going to go in the center of our feast table. So that as you're eating your meal, when you're walking past this table, you understand what this feast is about. You understand that this feast is our feast. And you can take some, and there will be cups for this, and you can take some juice with you. It's to remind you of what Jesus was saying here. Now, see, what the problem is, we don't practice this anymore because we're not sacrificing the lamb anymore. Jesus is the sacrificial lamb. So that's pointing us now to Jesus, the one who takes it all for us. So the Passover is finished. So the focus is shifted now, and we have a continuous communion with Jesus. This is what it's speaking about, this continuous communion with Jesus. Now, there's a fellowship of believers, and they, they actually did this, you know, they... they they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship or communion and to breaking of bread together and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe and many wonders and signs were performed by the apostles. And all the believers had, were together and had everything in common. 
They sold their property and their possessions to give to everyone who had need. And every day they continued to meet together in temple courts and they broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad hearts and sincere. They had these communal meals. And in these communal meals, they kept on breaking the bread because it came synonymous with eating. You break bread to eat. When they broke bread, it meant they were eating together. But as they were breaking bread, and that was part of their stable diet, they would break the bread and they'd say, Jesus broke his bread for Jesus broke his body for us. And then they drank the drink and they'd remember they were continuously living in righteousness. They had a breast of bread. They had this continuously with them the whole time. It was a continuous, it wasn't a thing they did on Sundays. It was something they did every day of the week. It was every time they broke bread, they thought about the breaking of Jesus' body. Every time they had a drink, they thought about Jesus. It was continuous, it was communion, it was something that they were living out in their lifestyle. This was not a ritual that they did on Sunday. There's nothing in the bread and there's nothing in the wine. They're just pictures. It's all in the communion of the heart. It's all in the life of righteousness. It's living it out in righteousness. Now we have a problem when we come to the scriptures because there's a church called the Corinthians. And the Corinthians, the word Corinthians became synonymous with problems. You've got problems? You're a Corinthian. And in the Corinthian church, they were doing this, but they had, a, they had a problem. They didn't have the breastplate of righteousness on. And I want to look and talk to you about that just very quickly. I know this is taking time, but this is important. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 17, it says, In the following directives, I have no praise for you, for your meetings do more harm than good. Okay, they were causing problems with their meetings. Okay. What were they doing? So then when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper. They said, we're having the Lord's Supper. No, you're not. This is not the Lord's Supper because you lost the essence of it. And he says, for when you're eating, some of you go ahead with, and others are your own. Sorry, sorry. For when you are eating, some of you go ahead with your own private suppers. As a result, one person remains hungry, another gets drunk. So it's like... You know, we come here for a meal and it's like this group of people over here get here first and they eat up all the food and they drink up all the wine and others got drunk. And this people, group of people who are working in the field who didn't come here first, they come and they're hungry because there's nothing left and there's drink, no, no drink and no food left. This is just terrible. This is meant to be this communal feast where we're all brothers and sisters. And what we have is this, this horrible thing happening. You know, people are being separate and individual. Don't you have homes to eat and drink? He says, this is not about food. Don't you have homes you can eat and drink? And this is meant to be about the communal community. This is meant to be about our communal love with Jesus. He says, or do you despise the church of God by humiliating those who have nothing? So he's dealing with the problem. People who were despising the church of God and, and people who were uh, humiliating those who had nothing. What shall we say then? I can't, I can't praise you, certainly not in this matter, he says. And then he goes and then tells him what he received. He says, this is what I got. He says, when I, the Lord said to us on the night that he was betrayed, he took bread, he broke it, and he tells us the routine. And then he goes down and he says things like this. He says, whoever eats of this bread, in verse 27, or drinks of this cup in an unworthy manner, will be getting guilty of sinning against the body and the blood of Jesus. Now, Where's the body and the blood of Jesus? Is it here? Where is it? Here. So this is not the body and the blood. So you can eat unworthily of this and it's not going to kill you, is it? It's not going to turn to poison in your mouth. The problem is if you eat... This is this thing, you know. If you're not living in a righteous relationship with Jesus and walking with Jesus and you come to this table, 
You're thinking this is the thing that's going to make you right? I had my supper. I had my communion service. But you thought that you could just keep on living in a wrong relationship with God and a wrong relationship with your fellow man and a wrong relationship with sin and wrong with all those things. You just think you can just come to this table and, oh, it's okay, it's not a problem. Because it's the table, it's the table. No, no. He's talking about the breastplate of righteousness not being on. The breastplate of righteousness is not on. He says, this is, you're meant to be something and you're, you're actually being something other than that. And he goes, everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat the bread and drink the cup. For those who eat the drink and drink without discerning the body of, and he's talking now the body as in the body of people of Christ, eat and drink damnation to themselves. He says, so you're going to examine yourself. Now, what are you going to examine yourself on? Now, you're going to examine yourself if you're going to be a Christian or not. Well, I can't do that. I can't even tell which one is you Christian or not, really. Only God knows that. You might think you got it all. I might think I've got it all together, but I haven't got it right before God. You know, I don't. You might, I might look like I do, but you don't know. God knows the end. So I can't judge my brother before the Lord he stands. So I'm not asking whether you're a Christian or not. I'm not asking you to say, well, I'm not a Christian, therefore I can't take this meal. No, we understand this is a believer's meal. But these questions, in context, do not ask us to tell unsaved people not to take it. They ask us to judge ourselves, to see whether we are despising and humiliating others who are coming to this feast. This has nothing to do with the testimony of whether you're a Christian or not. To look at your life and ask yourself the question, are you despising the body of Christ and are you humiliating those that are coming with nothing? It has to do with your attitude at this point of time. So when you come to this table, it's not whether you're saved. This is, we understand, a meal for converted people. And we understand that unconverted people eat at this table as well. But the examination is not for you to testify and to put an unconverted person on the, on the thing here. It's to ask yourself the question, have you been despising the body and humiliating the body, because that's the context of the question. He says, everyone who ought to examine himself before he eat, and those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ, eat and drink damnation or judgment to themselves. So it goes back to verse 22. What are you examining? You're examining if you despise. The word despise is to disdain, to think little of. Okay. If my life, I'm sitting there and I have this arrogant attitude that I am more superior spiritually than another person and I'm coming to this table, I'm coming unworthily. Why? It speaks of my sinfulness. I'm no better than anybody else. I don't care how religious or righteous you think you are. If you come to this table and you disdain or think down on anybody else in this room as though they are littler or smaller spiritually than you, less important than you, you are coming to this table not living in the righteousness that comes from God. You come to this table not judging if a person is saved or not. You come to this table judging your heart. Do you see that you are a member, a sinner like everybody else, needing this table to bring you right before God? Jesus brings you right before God. Do you understand that? This is not about 
sifting out and exclusively alienating people because they're not of our faith. This is about recognizing this is the, the us. The question at this point of time is whether you're treating your brothers and sisters correctly. It says, are you humiliating those who have nothing? That's repulsing, putting them to shame, disgracing them. You know, not everybody can bring to this table. Not everybody has the ability to bring food to this table. I'm sure that Farad didn't bring food to this table. He didn't have food to bring to this table or he didn't know what his table was on. So when he comes to this table, what do we say to him? Well, you know, you can't eat at this table. We've actually humiliated him and pushed him aside, make him feel like he's not welcome. That's not what the point of the exercise was. The point of the exercise was you as a Christian, examine not your heart that you don't do that to somebody. So the very thing that we think that, we, or that you know, you've got to do that is the very thing we're told not to do. We're, we're told not to alienate, not to separate, not to think down. You don't know. I don't know where Farad is with regard to his relationship with God. He tells me he believes in Jesus. He tells me he's accepted Jesus. Well, he's, if, he, if he does that, God is his source he knows. He's welcome to eat at this table, but he must now examine it. If he's looking down at me and thinking, I'm no good, well, then he's coming to the table with the wrong motive. That's what we're asked to do here. Such disdaining and humiliation of others is unrighteous living. James tells us it's unrighteous. If a rich man comes into the place and there's a poor man, you tell the poor man to sit over there and the rich man to sit here, he says, you're making yourself a judge with evil motive. That's not living righteously. It's not having love for your fellow man. This is the whole point. Love for your fellow man is part of the breastplate of righteousness. If you're going to have love on, you've got to be loving. Shows partiality, and partiality is not love. You know, the fact that there are going to be people at this love feast who don't know Jesus and who are here for the wrong motives, we can't actually stop that. Scripture tells us that. He says, in the last days, look in Jude, it says, in Jude 1 verse 12, he says, and these people are blemishes in your love feast. This is the love feast, the meal that we have today. Eating with you without the slightest calms. They were shepherds. Shepherds. They were pastors. You thought they were safe, you thought, but they were wolves. They ate with us at the table. You see, you don't know who's saved and who's not saved, really. Only God really knows that. These were shepherds. They were at the love feast, shepherds who only feed themselves. They weren't thinking about anybody else. They weren't thinking about what's best for others. They were just in it for themselves. This is my stuff, my ministry. I'm in it for myself. They are clouds without rain, blown along by the wind, autumn trees without fruit and uprooted, twice dead. Why are they dead? Because they took the breastplate of righteousness off. That's why they're twice dead. Second Peter chapter 2, verses 13 to 14 tells us the same thing. He says, They will be paid back with harm for the harm they have done. The idea of pleasure is, their idea of pleasure is to carouse, which means to have a party. In broad daylight, they are blots and blemishes reveling in their pleasures while they feast with you. This is the feast. They, while they feast with you. He says, what are they doing? He says, their eyes are full of adultery. They're looking around, they're checking out the babes. Oh yeah, she's a nice babe. Their eyes are full of adultery. They never stop sinning. They seduce the unstable. They're experts in greed and a cruise brood. They are wolves in the flock. You cannot stop an unbeliever from the love feast because they're always going to be there. What this is about is you checking your heart to make sure that you are treating others correctly. That's the context of that. It's not to with, 
With strict people, it's to examine to see whether you've got the breastplate of righteousness on. What's the problem? No breastplate of righteousness. No continuous communion with God. They've forgotten the belt of truth so they don't hear God speak to them and they don't obey God when he speaks to them. They come to eat at this meal and they don't live in this relationship of listening to God and obeying God. They just do as they please. They eat at the meal as though that's okay. It's like just nothing. But they don't have the belt of truth on. Because the belt of truth is listening to the Holy Spirit and obeying him every time. And they don't have the breastplate of righteousness on. They've forgotten to love God and love men impartially. They've forgotten the cleansing blood of Jesus because this is all about being a sinner and being cleansed. They've forgotten the infilling of the Holy Spirit, which is about seeking to praise and adore God at this feast because this is the anthem of praise. We come and say, praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise God for the sacrificed lamb. Praise God for Jesus who, who gave his life for us. They, they've just forgotten. This is, this is just about them. It's what, what, what they want to do at this meal. I just want to eat my food. You know, I'll get mine. I've got the last piece. Ha, ha, ha. Forgotten. It's a meal of sharing. And they've forgotten that the nourishment of this meal is not in the food. It's not about the food. This is not a meal that we eat because the food is good for us. This is about... Nourishing ourselves in Jesus and walking with Jesus and living with Jesus and finding our refreshment in Jesus. That's what this love feast is about. That's what we do here today. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you'd help us to understand these things. Lord, we have often come to this table in an irreverent fashion and we ask you to forgive us we have often supped at this table selfishly looking for what we can get out of it and we ask you to forgive us we have often come to this table thinking about others as being less than ourselves and we ask you to forgive us we ask you to help us, Lord Jesus, to live with this belt of truth and this breastplate of righteousness on in a continuous way so that our lives can shine your glory. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you.